The Your Mark on the World show is made possible by our sponsors, including Gate Global Impact and Curtin McConkie. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the You Are Mark on the World show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. I'm a contributor at Forbes covering social entrepreneurship and impact investing. And our guest today is a truly inspired uh, social entrepreneur, uh, Jacob Leaf. He is the co-founder and CEO of Ubuntu Education Fund uh, operating in uh, in Africa. W- welcome to the show, Jake. We're, we're just thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Jake, tell us a little bit uh, about the problems that you see that drew you to Africa and to start your work there. Right. So I'm American and uh, my family moved to the UK when I was about uh, 13 years old. And at the time, it was the center of the Free South Africa movement, which was the uh, ensuring the release of Nelson Mandela from prison and uh, ensuring that we have economic sanctions remain on South Africa for the eventually the democratic elections. And I started volunteering, getting involved and had an opportunity to go in 1994 to observe the transition to democracy. And the experience just changed my life. The story I always tell is um, one evening I was in an area called Alexandria, which is a shantytown shacks that sit in the shadows of Santon, which is the economic hub of the continent. Huge skyscrapers look like lower Manhattan. And uh, I met this woman and she was old and quite large. And I was 17. It just came out. I said to her, uh, uh, and she was, we started talking. She said she'd waited 30 hours to cast her ballot. And I said, I, I don't get it. What do you mean you waited 30 hours? And she's like, you don't get it, boy. I've waited 85 years. And I think that was the moment when I said I wanted to be a part of what they were calling New South Africa. And I, I went back through, universe, through my university a few years later in 1997. And what I witnessed was a country that was uh, truly suffering the legacy of apartheid, infrastructure that was scant. Um, unemployment that was over 85%, um, an HIV crisis that had yet to be identified. Uh, and really, I just said, I bet I could do something. I had this incredible experience when I, uh, I moved into this community and met a school teacher. And I was an entrepreneur. I was at the University of Pennsylvania. I know I, no, I wasn't a social worker. I wasn't into education or healthcare. And I just witnessed these young uh, children uh, living in shacks who had been abused and South Africa was saying, apartheid's over. You can all go to university. And I took one look at these kids and said, there's no way in hell you guys are going to get to university. And that's really where the organization began. So what did you do for those kids? You recognized they didn't have a chance of getting to university from where they were. What did you do? So, you know, I went back to my university and I started, I had a little raffle on my campus. And back then, I don't know if you remember, but they used to give away credit cards on college campuses. So I took eight of them. And I started Ubuntu. The basic idea was I, went, I drew a seven-kilometer zone around a community of about 300,000 people. And I said, I didn't want to work with the top academic children. I want to work with the bottom of the bottom, the kids who've been raped, the kids who had lost their parents, the most vulnerable. And I want to prove that if someone invested in these children the same way someone invested in me, we could get them out of poverty. Well, that was 18, almost 18 years ago. Uh, today, we have 2,000 children on this pathway out of poverty. We provide medical, psychosocial, educational. We, we, we like to say that we give our kids in South Africa what kids all around the world deserve, and that's everything. So if they need a hug, we give them a hug. If they need 
uh, eyeglasses, we buy them eyeglasses. We don't say we're not a vision organization. It's truly comprehensive. As I shared with you earlier, I'm always asked at conferences, can you share your great innovation with us? And I, I sort of chuckle because there's no innovation here. It's an old recipe. It's how do you raise children? You feed them, you take care of them, you nurture them, you love them, and you do it every day of their lives. That's true sustainability. You know, a lot of the philanthropy world is always saying to us, what's your exit strategy? You know, there's no exit strategy in raising children. And anyone who has their own kids knows that. So, you know, one of the, I mean, the clear question this all begs is, does it work? I mean, you're investing all of this time, energy, money in these kids. What kind of results are you getting? Sure. So the first thing to remember is you can only raise children so fast, right? So in 17 years, we have 43 kids who've graduated university and another 110 children who have gone through a vocational training. What we learned, though, is we originally started with grade eight students, but that was too late in the game. We started working ourselves back. So today, the way to get into our program is being an HIV-positive pregnant mother. You see, most of the world, parenting begins when a child is born. The truth is, we all know it here in America, that the parenting begins in the first trimester. If you don't get that right, what goes into a woman's body, how the health of the mother correlates directly to a child's development. So we ensure a healthy birth. We have 100% success rate in our clinics of HIV-positive moms giving birth to HIV-negative babies. And then we work with these kids every day of their lives, starting with intensive early childhood education, building that foundation, um, parenting, using the child. Using the child, you have to stabilize the home environment. Once you do that, you can actually make progress academically. So we take these children on this unbelievable journey until about age about 16, where we split them into two tracks. One track is university where about 20 children a year will go into university, but 100 children a year of ours will go into what we call vocational training. And those are real life skills, real hard skills to learn. How do you access the world of work? And our job is not just getting kids to university or employment, but keeping them in their university, keeping them in employment. Uh, so this sort of North Star for us is stable health, stable income. Um, we've, we've found through our studies that you know for every dollar we invest in a child at Ubuntu, who graduates our program, they return, they, they gain $8.70 in real lifetime earnings. That's extraordinary for South Africa. Um, you start to see some of the key indicators that we look at. So 72% of our children uh, matriculate past grade 12 exam eligible for university. That compares to 37% in our region. 97% of our moms adhere to their HIV drugs compared to 57% in the region. And I say, why is that such an important statistic is because we found keeping a mother healthy and alive is the key to keeping a child moving through life. The minute the mother passes on is when a child, a house becomes destabilized. That's where children go into survival mode, transactional sex or crime. And so it's really about stabilizing the environment and staying with these children the whole journey. You know, it, we, it, it's intuitive, I think, uh, to, to, to most of us that our children, uh, shouldn't have to uh, prostitute themselves, shouldn't have to work. In fact, in, in uh, affluent America, most parents think our children shouldn't have to work at McDonald's in the afternoon. And that they are entitled to food, clothing, shelter, etc. But we don't often think about the poorest people in the world being entitled to those things. We somehow feel like they should earn them. How do you respond to that argument when you hear it? You know, so I'm sitting in lower Manhattan right now when I'm not in South Africa. We have an office here and I do a lot of fundraising here in New York. And the number one question I'm always asked is, 
we love what you're doing, but how can you reach more children for less money? Or this, this argument that we're spending too much money. When we went and built our Ubuntu center, which is, you know, a, an education health facility that's on par with the nicest facilities in London or Manhattan. I mean, you'd want to uh, send your own kids there. It's, it's beautiful, but it's in the middle of the shacks. And I remember people criticizing us in New York saying, how dare you spend $7 million on a building when there's so much poverty? But these are the same people sending their own children to $50,000 a year private schools. So why is it, it's, it's, why is it okay for you to send your own child and invest in your own child that way? That way? But when I, a poor black children in South Africa doesn't you know, deserve that. And this idea that access to great education, healthcare is a privilege is still permeates the philanthropy world. It really does. And it really is a child's right, as you're saying. So, you know, we, we try to encourage people to inve- <coughs> excuse me, invest in disadvantaged communities, whether it's South Africa or the South Bronx, in the same manner you invest in your own children. If it's not good enough for your own family, then it shouldn't be good enough for the organization you're supporting and afford the same dignity. If we start there, I think we'll start to have the right conversation. Well, I think that is a great foundational principle. But then it does beg the question next of how do we scale that? How do we replicate what you're doing in uh, – in uh, where are you in Port Elizabeth? How do we scale that to other uh, townships in South Africa, other uh, favelas in Brazil and Rio? How do we, you know, take it to the slums of Mumbai? Well, I've been exploring this for almost eighteen years now, and what I've landed on is that raising children is not scalable. What works for you, Devin, didn't work for your sibling. It's deeply individualized path what a child needs, right? I mean, you can have siblings who have completely different needs. Um, in that sense, we've created these individualized pathways to help these children out. So that being said, um, we've begun exploring how we can build the next Ubuntu. So we turned down a huge amount of money someone offered us to build another Ubuntu center because what we realized is we had no connection to that community. I didn't want to just do it to prove I could do it. And then we explored the franchising model. And the problem with franchising is they breed mediocrity. Sure, it's a Big Mac, but it's a Big Mac. It's not your nice butcher's, you know, farm-to-table hamburger. And we really thought we were the gold standard in what we were trying to do. So we landed on this idea of leveraging what we know as opposed to scaling it. Um, And our goal is to create an institute over the next two years where we identify entrepreneurs from disadvantaged communities around the world who have made it out and who want to go back and who really want to build community institutions. Cause that's what we are at the end of the day. And I think what, something that's missing from the larger development dialogue is this idea of institution building, seeing successful communities and communities I grew up in cornerstones of these communities were thriving institutions, but in poor communities anywhere in the world, whether it's here in New York or in Utah, where you are, wherever the co- they're missing functioning institutions. And if you want to study public health, Paul Farmer at Harvard does it better than we do. If you want to study education, I give you a lot of groups who do it better. But we are in the middle of a community running a truly world-class community institution that can respond to communities' needs. And so we want to create an institute some sort of, to help incubate a group of entrepreneurs, not just in South Africa, but around the world, who can realize their own vision, but rooted in this theory of change of, of building, going deeper into a community rather than... Uh, spreading out geographically. And I think if we could, let's say, today we have 2,000 children on the pathway out of Ubuntu, pathway out of poverty in Ubuntu. And if we can take these 2,000 children who were moving towards crime and death, towards a trajectory of employment and good citizenship, that'll change the entire world. So if we can create, you know, over the next 10 years, 15 institutions around the world functioning at this level, that'll begin to really make some huge ripples. 
Well, it, it will, and it, it's it's a powerful, powerful model, and I am excited to see it replicated around the world because there are so many people that desperately need this model. And I, I, as I mentioned to you before we even got on the call, I think it, it's it's applicable in in many ways to the homeless community in the United States. You know, these are full grown adults that that many of whom have had uh, life experiences and childhoods that were deprived of the kind of care and feeding that you're providing and, and they are lives worth saving. So it, it, it is a compelling, compelling model. And, and uh, I just, I just love it. it. It is a challenge to figure out how to scale it and uh, replicate it. But I'm excited that you are, working on that very thing, because I think there's real power in what you're doing. I think, you know, I I see what is scaled out there in this field. And so much of it is how do we distribute, you know, 10 million wind up computers across the world. But, you know, I wasn't raised on a wind up computer in a cup of soup. It's not how I got to the university of Pennsylvania. That's not, you know, and I think if we truly want to change a child's life and not just touch a child's life, it's going to take a lot more. And we really are trying to, create a platform to engage with the philanthropic community to really think about what, how to define success and why they're in the business that they're, they're in. And the problem with scale um, is that it just, it's dangerous and we have to be careful when we're talking about human development. It's one thing if we're building wells across a, across a region that can be scaled. I get that. Um, human development is very tricky. Now th- there must be students kids, people in your program who struggle. How do you deal with those who struggle with the program? Well, most of our children don't make it. And that's another problem in our sector is no one talks about the failure. Um, if we all were, you know, you go to, I was just the Clinton initiative. If everyone was doing half of what they said they were doing on stage, there'd be no poverty in the world. So we need to have, have a much more honest discussion about how difficult this is. And a lot of it's not up the organization's fault. It's the environment we're working in. We only have our children, you know, eight to maybe 10 hours a day. They're in a larger community, generational poverty. Um, there's so These children are so vulnerable. Um, so what we always say is we need to motivate a child, a motivated client. There's no way we can change someone's life who doesn't want to change their own life. So the only way to get kicked out of our well, – you don't get kicked out of our program if you're failing your math exam. Of course not. You get kicked out if you're not coming to class. You get kicked out if you're not giving the effort. And, you know, we kick about 160 kids out a year, and that's for not giving the effort. Um, but listen, we stick with our children. We work with them. And there are a lot of small successes along the way. You know, I paint an image of, you know, the, the, the North Star of, you know, holding down a job. But for a lot of these children, it's a day-to-day struggle. And we have to lay out a pathway and highlight key milestones and make them achievable. Um, I always tell my team, because it's always one step forward and one and 10 steps back in our business, I always tell my team, let's measure our success against where we've come from, not against where we're going, meaning are we making progress? Every day are we making progress? Are we learning the mis- from the mistakes? And if you continue that in that in sort of that manner, um, you can keep your head above the water and keep moving forward. Um, it's extraordinary young men and women we see every day who are achieving remarkable results you know, in the face of this poverty. And... Um, but we also see a lot of suffering and a lot of kids who just fall through the cracks. Yeah. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, we do. And, and it's uh, heartbreaking, but listen, uh, Jake, I want to ask you a couple of personal questions to get some personal insight from you. Uh, 
you really have become an icon, a role model in the social entrepreneurship world, uh, in, in the uh, world of NGOs. I mean, you, you really are well-known, well-recognized and appreciated. Who do you look up to as a role model? Interesting question. I think one of the people that mo- really inspires me most is our deputy president, Mulvani Zonke. He is a uh, extraordinary human being, one who, during the time of apartheid, he's from our communities, and he uh, came across his brother, who's a big activist, with his hands and feet cut off with a gunshot behind the head, execution style, and was burnt, his body burnt. And in 1994, during the Truth and Reconciliation Committee hearings, he talks about facing the killers during these amnesty hearings, the policemen who killed his brother, and forgiving them. And not just doing it because they were in these hearings in, with the TV cameras. He lives his life that way, that selflessness. It really exudes a spirit of Ubuntu. Ubuntu is this idea in South Africa that we exist because of one another. I am because you are. That doesn't matter your race, your politics, your religion. The fact that we're all human beings should be enough that we treat each other as brothers and sisters. It's a um, deeply powerful concept of community. And he's someone who every day of his life, he's suffered more than anyone else I know who is a beacon of this concept of Ubuntu and selflessness and the drop of a hat will, um, will go and help anybody. He left a very cushy job as a deputy principal at a school with a big pension to uh, come work for us 12 years ago when I was a child, basically. <laughs> I was 20-something you know, years old, and he believed in me back then, and he stood by my side since, and he's just a, a truly remarkable person who – it's people like that. It's my team, to be honest. The kids are amazing, but it's the, the team at Ubuntu who keeps me going every day who every day more and more people have bought into this vision, who dedicate their people who could work anywhere in the world, make a lot more money, not to deal with the nonsense we deal with, um, and have committed their lives to this incredible cause. Well, speaking of that, you've committed your life to this. You could be doing anything. You could be making more money. You could be, you could wash your hands of South Africa and never go back. Why do you care? Why do you do this? So as I sort of shared earlier, I had this, Deeply powerful experience as a 19-year-old down there. Well, first as a, as a, was a 17 during the elections, but then going back through university where I found myself in this community and taken in by this, this guy who I met that evening in a bar. And I moved in with his family and I spent six months living in this community. And I obviously romant, overly romanticized it, knowing in the back of my mind I could always leave. But I experienced real Ubuntu, real community, people who cared Despite, you know, I was a symbol, the color of my skin made me a symbol of everything wrong in the country. Yet this person over a beer invited me to just come live with his family. And what I witnessed, um, young um, children who, you know, believed in the power that it, of an education, that was going to be their ticket out of poverty. I just, I was just so inspired by that experience. And it's what drove me and fueled me through those early years that were just unbelievable. And it keep, keep pushing me today. Um, I think what you, you need to have that deep personal connection to something, to have the passion to stick with something this long. Well, uh, I, I hear you. I hear you. And that, that is inspiring to the rest of us, to, to, to just to feel your passion. You know, I, uh, I, uh, I'll never forget that when I was down there as a university student, and uh, last morning I was there, Banks, who I was living with, uh, woke me at four in the morning, he took me somewhere to show me something, and he was – it was shacks as far as you can see in front of each shack was a, a child holding a brick over a fire and using that, heating the brick and using it as an iron to iron their school uniform so they'd look 
dignified and proud to go to school. And that's when I said, hey, if these kids are doing this to go to school, like, come on, I got to, you know, I think about that image constantly. Um, and it sort of drives me to just keep going, pushing our team harder and harder. Oh, what a powerful image. What a powerful image. Picturing those kids ironing their shirts with bricks. Uh, uh, that is a powerful image. You know, one of the things that we look for uh, at your mark on the world is to try and get some insight uh, into what, what I call an impact hack, right? You know, some, some trick or tip to help us do more good. And you've done so much good. You've learned so much. We just want to extract one tip from you that would help us do more good. One little impact hack. What do you think? <laughs> I don't know who gave me this advice and it started before I even started Ubuntu, but it's to finish every day by, by really reviewing mentally a list of what you, the mistakes you made that day. Learning, being accepting your mistakes, being honest, self-aware enough to know maybe you spoke to a colleague the wrong way. Maybe you totally screwed up a report you were supposed to present. Being aware of your mistakes so you can improve on them and go forward. And honestly, not a day goes by that I don't go do that mental checklist and go through, how did I screw up today? Where did I mess up? And it's allowed us to really create a culture within the organization of learning, a culture where we can take more chances and people know that they, they it's okay to mess up because we learn from messing up and we get better. And that's where real innovation comes from. I hear you. Well, Jake, it's just been an awesome opportunity for us to meet you, to, to learn more about the great work that you're doing. And uh, before you go, I want to just invite you to tell people how they can learn more, how they can support you in your work, et cetera. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, and please come visit us in South Africa. But uh, our website is uh, org. so ubuntufund.org, and check us out online and uh, reach out to us. We'd love to speak with you. Fantastic. Well, Jake, we wish you every success in the great work that you're doing. Thank you for being here. Thank you. All righty. Let's do some good. At the intersection of financial services and social media, Gate Global Impact, GGI, uses new market infrastructure to facilitate investments in organizations that deliver a societal, environmental, and or a cause-related benefit in addition to a financial return. Regardless of company size or business challenge, clients count on Curtin McConkie to solve problems, help realize opportunities, and provide high-caliber legal and business thinking without breaking their legal budgets. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash devinthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devon is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, 
visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devon's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.